I'm gonna do like the John Oliver. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh my God. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Cloud Unfiltered. I'm your hostess, Nikki Acosta, and I'm really stoked about our guest today because it's someone that I've been I've been knowing for a minute. Going oh. way back. It's Josh McKenty, field CTO slash VP slash awesome guy, Cloud Arati original. Uh, at Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Say hi, Josh. Hey, Nikki. So glad to hear, be here. So glad to be me here right now. Dude, you're getting existential on me, man. <laughs> it's too early for that, Josh. <laughs> uh, depends on what time zone you're in. It's already afternoon for me. <laughs> you need more coffee. <laughs> I've had several. <laughs> so we were uh, talking pre-show, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about OpenStack. Before I do that, uh, for those who don't know you, tell us how you got into tech and how you got to where you are now. Oh my God, it's a long story. Uh, I started programming when I was six on an Apple II Plus clone called an Apco, and I never really stopped. Um, didn't go to college, just started programming in high school, and then uh, got involved early on with open source. Um, was the tech lead for the Netscape browser at one point, and then um, worked my way up into working at NASA. Um, so did uh, started the OpenStack project at NASA with uh, Jesse Andrews and Sue Choi and Chris Kemp and a bunch of people there, and then uh, went out and started a company around it, actually, which Cisco bought. So uh, a lot of my old friends ended up over at, at Cisco. Um, and then uh, made a pretty graceful transition from um, from OpenStack over to Cloud Foundry. Uh, at Piston, we'd worked on that early integration, the sort of how do you run Cloud Foundry on top of OpenStack. And so it was a really natural, you know, actually when I, when I was hired at NASA, I was hired to build a PaaS. And so building OpenStack was kind of like, gosh, we need somewhere to build our PaaS on. Let's just whip up an IaaS really quick, which turned out to be like five years of my life. Uh, but it felt really nice to get back to the platform layer when it, when I got over to Pivotal, and so that's been uh, last three or four years, I guess. I mean, I had a bunch of roundabout detours along the way. Worked for the World Bank and and started some other companies and did some gaming and some other browsers and whatever. But uh, but that's the rough the the thumbnail sketch. So what you're saying is you get bored easy. <laughs> yes. No. What I'm saying, I have a habit of starting open source projects. Uh, you know, the one I, I worked on for the UN and the World Bank is called OpenQuake. Uh, I've started one around uh, using continuous delivery to deal with, with certification and accreditation called Open Control. And, and they just tend to kind of get out of, out of hand, get, get away from me a little bit, and then I like to run to catch up. So and, I, then, I and then you start a new one. Then, well, it's not on purpose. It's just like, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if I just did fix this little problem over here that's sort of the way of this other thing I'm trying to do? Um, and then, yeah, they get, they they take on a life of their own. So, what is uh what is Cloud Foundry up to? Uh, wow. Um, I think the business we're in now is called digital transformation. To be honest, I just got out of a, a three-hour meeting with a set of vice presidents from one of the world's largest manufacturers. I'll leave it at generically. Um, yeah, more than half of the Fortune 500 use Cloud Foundry now. Um, so it's gone from being uh, like, hey, what if we had open source Heroku that you could run in your own data center? Wouldn't that be cool? To now be like, 
hey, JP Morgan Chase uses it to power like tens of thousands of containers in arbitrary data centers all over the world. And the Air Force uses it to do better at not blowing up the wrong people. And it's, uh, yeah, the ecosystem, you know, the service broker API that, that was originally developed at, at Cloud Foundry is now adopted by Microsoft and Google and Amazon and Kubernetes, VMware. Uh, so it's become this sort of standard in a lot of ways for how you deal with the, the intersection of apps and data, which is really where, where, where money is made and hearts are broken. And hearts are broken. <laughs> I, I, look, I, there's no doubt I've seen you on the news. Of course, I'm, I'm friends with uh, you and Mr. Waters on Facebook, so I probably yeah. get uh, a little bit more of a, of a view, but I most definitely see y'all in the headlines quite a bit, which is awesome. It, it I, I mean, they, you know, I've worked at, on four startups of my own and then worked at a couple of other ones, and so everyone talks about being on a rocket ship or scaling a business, and almost no one knows what that actually feels like. It feels like it's out of control all the time. And the, the things that happen, the deals that you end up involved in, the conversations, like, like hey, uh, the CIO of the Air Force is coming in for a half day with us. Will you talk to him about Cloud Foundry? <laughs> and we don't talk about Cloud Foundry. We end up talking about how to rewrite the Senate uh, subcommittee's appropriations bill <laughs> to focus on innovation, you know, like you can't even make this stuff up. It's got to be fun for you. You love it. It's super fun. I, I'm still doing at least a quarter million miles a year of travel. Uh, I feel like I have this incredibly privileged bird's eye view of the changes that are happening in all these different industries. Um, and it's like it's new architectures, it's microservices, it's new cultural approaches, it's like experimentation and innovation and like tearing down old hierarchies. Um, but it's not just experimentation for the sake of like let's try out the newest tool or widget. It's like business focused. It feels like uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is a little rough as a comparison. But did you see Inglorious Bastards? Ah. Uh... Yes, I did right? see that. So it's like you've got these amazing teams, and they're in a certain sense they're unsupervised. They're like, yeah, we just get to do whatever we want, but we know what the goal is. So you just run into them occasionally in the woods, and you're like, hey, you're dealing with that. You're <laughs> killing Nazis. I'm punching Nazis. Let's go. Man, the power of your mind to come up with interesting <laughs> metaphors has never ceased to amaze me. Brilliant. So so let's talk about OpenStack real quick, even though. You know, we before in the pre-show we said, you know, OpenStack. Golly, I feel like we've been doing this this thing forever, and people still, you know, want to talk about it all the time, which is which is great. But I would love to get your unfiltered views on where OpenStack is. Yeah, so let me start by answering it by talking about something completely different, right? You know, the the Jeffrey Moore is crossing the chasm curve, right? You got your early adopters, and then you got this gap before you get to the early majority, and you got late majority and laggards. That doesn't exist anymore. It, it disappeared in the last five years. Now we have the early adopter slash majority and then the rest of the big bang market. So it's basically just two steps. And if you miss early, you never get a chance to recover. Like it used to be, hey, we weren't the cool kids, but we can go after the early majority of this emerging market and do pretty well. It doesn't happen anymore. So the 
we're still grappling. A lot of our customers are still grappling with being in a slow mindset of like, hey, most of our customers are these late majority laggards, and so they're. And I was like, no, they're not. They're they're. Uh, you know, those aren't actually your customers. You think those are your customers, but you've missed the boat. You know, the banks is a classic example. Robo advisors. They're like, it came out of nowhere. I was like, no, it didn't. You just weren't paying attention. The early signs, they were all there. Um, so what does that have to do with OpenStack? Some of our customers are treating OpenStack like it's a new thing and they're excited about their OpenStack initiative. And I was like, ooh, if you're still racing to catch up to 2010, I have news for you. Like your pacing is off. If this is a new thing for you, you're way too late. Like let's not do that. Let's go straight to a public cloud environment or let's just stick with what you have with vSphere. But what you need to focus on is running a PaaS. You know, as I said before, I was hired at NASA to build a platform, not to build an IaaS. Um, and that's because the platform is where you get the value. So having said that, OpenStack, it's still uh, probably 25% of our customer base by total container count. So less than 10% of our customers, but they tend to be the really large ones. A lot of them are telcos, um, have Cloud Foundry on, on OpenStack. That's their, that's their reference architecture. And it runs pretty well. And my goal, and I know you were involved in this early as well, but the goal was always to have OpenStack become as boring as possible, as quickly as possible. A dumb target. Right, like just, yeah. it's a set of API endpoints that drive virtualized infrastructure, that's all you wanna know. Um, and so the parts of OpenStack that got dumb and boring quickly, Nova, Cinder, Glance, Keystone Swift, they've been good for a long time, right? So I don't, we run into accounts now, it's um, two days ago, a call with one of the top five banks. Um, they have OpenStack. And, uh, and they're like, hey, we really want to run Cloud Foundry on top of this. Is it going to work? I'm like, yeah, it's going to work. I don't even have to know how you've configured it. It's going to work as long as all we're talking about is Nova, Cinder, Glance, Swift, Keystone, maybe Neutron. <laughs> um, but what happened, I think, happens a lot with open source communities is the people involved in the community wanted to keep it fresh and exciting. They wanted to keep it like, hey, we're doing super cool stuff with OpenStack. And so they kept trying to drive OpenStack off into new territory. I was like, ah, that's not what OpenStack is for. I don't know why you're doing that there. You're speaking um, to Big Tent, the Big Tent initiative. Big Tent. Um, yeah, and there was a certain, there was logic to parts of the Big Tent to say, hey, we should, we should let there be competition in some parts of OpenStack. We should, we should have two projects that can arm wrestle down the best way to do this one thing. Um, but that became, it should be a catch-all for everything people are doing in this, with this approach and process, which doesn't lead well to, it leads well to that community catering to the people who are writing the software, not trying to use it. And that focus, that loss of focus, I think, was, was worrisome. The place where it didn't lose its way really was telco, right? The telcos got the seat at the table they needed. They know how to drive the open source governance process. They know how to drive, and what they're solving is NFE. They're like, we need network function virtualization. We're gonna use OpenStack. We decided that years ago. We've been iterating it towards being able to solve these problems for us, and they're doing it well. Um, and so I think the media has been harsh on OpenStack was saying, oh, it's failing. I'm like, no, no, it's not failing. It's succeeding at the market that was logical for the way the governance ended up functioning. Um, and they're not in a hurry. Telcos, 
don't, you know, it's called 5G for a reason. They've only done five of them and it takes, there's one every 10 years. Right? <laughs> like, it's not 50G. Uh, it's not at that pace. So uh, I think they're, they're happy. They're relatively happy with what they're doing there. We're happy because the collaboration still makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I wish I knew then what I know now um, in terms of governance and community. And I, you know, I've spent a lot of the last seven years learning some very hard lessons about um, how groups function and how open source communities function. And I was super naive. Um, and I think the rest of the OpenStack Foundation team were super naive early on that were like, we'll just let everybody participate and we'll focus on everybody in this community being invited and somehow good things will emerge. Um, Technical meritocracy. Meritocracy turns out to be a, a bad word because the people who claim to have merit then police who else is assumed to have merit. Mm. And, you know, we missed some opportunities to make uh, the technical community inside OpenStack so much better, so much better. We ended up being not actually friendly to new contributors. We ended up being really bureaucratic in some scary ways. Um, and, you know, I've seen like the Kubernetes community and how that community is managed. And I, I mean that in the best possible way the relationship management in that community is of a very high caliber because they don't, they don't pretend that code commits exist in isolation from the people who wrote them or the relationships of the people who review them. But do you think that's because there are a, a lot of folks involved in Kubernetes who were also involved in OpenStack? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They learned, they learned a bunch of hard lessons and um, also, the companies involved were willing to fund people to be full-time doing the right things. You know, and I think the worst thing we did, the two worst things we did in OpenStack. One, we measured lines of code. And it wasn't the OpenStack Foundation who did it, but we permitted it. Uh, and it got talked about. And who wrote how many lines and who committed how many commits became a pissing match for doing the wrong things. The other thing we did is we gave people free passes to the summits if they landed commits. So we gamified bad behavior. Mm. Um, and whereas I think the Kubernetes, and we had this goal to make the community open and accepting of non-technical contribution. And there's a fun argument on Twitter about whether or not that's even the right term for this. <laughs> uh, but you know, evangelism activity, docs writing, FAQs, sample apps, user interface design, uh, all of the other ways that a successful project need to evolve. Um, we, had, we knew that it was a problem that we weren't doing it well, but we didn't, we didn't get the buy-in from the sponsors of OpenStack to solve it the way I think Kubernetes did, um, you know, and some, some other communities have, have done fairly well as well. So if you could go back and change things, what else would you change knowing what you know now? Like if I'm, you know, thinking about either joining an open source community or potentially, you know, starting one, like what are the hard lessons other than the ones that you've already mentioned? 
Yeah, great question. Um, there was some timing that I think we should have we should have fixed. We should have been more focused on. I think we should have been more opinionated about what we wanted the community to look like long term, uh, rather than sort of agnostic to the right thing will kind of emerge. We were naively optimistic, um, so I would have. Um, you know, I think honestly, the Cloud Foundry Foundation, we did a much better job of structuring how that foundation was set up and the particularly the goal of who we wanted as members and why we wanted them to be members and what we thought that meant to them. And these are these feel like simple questions, but we actually didn't ever answer them well in OpenStack. We're like, everybody should be a member. And Give me your money. And money and vendors competing. Um, and then the users were members, but they didn't know why, because they were excited. It was a membership because of excitement. The vendors were members without a clear idea of what they were going to sell that was different than what anyone else was going to sell. The messaging between the vendors and the users was really mucky in terms of, hey, are we supposed to build it, contribute, or buy it, run it? Um, and honestly, ironically, it's my fault. It's always my fault. You know, we were super proud at the time of the fact that it was 17 days from the time we started coding Nova to the first open source release in the blog post and the partnership with Rackspace came out of that. And I was the one pushing. Jesse was like, we should have a little bit more done first. Maybe we'll go another week. And I'm like, no, I am tired. It's been two years of being in NASA and not releasing open source. We have to release open source. Let's just make the repo public and blog about it. Um, and I was probably wrong. Jesse was right because what we didn't have, what we didn't make public was, you know, how do you run it? Is it a chef recipe, a puppet recipe, is it dev stack? And not having made that prescriptive led to four years of vendors trying to differentiate on installers, you know. And we ended up, at Piston, we ended up building Moxie, you know, Cloud Foundry has Bosch, they're very similar, there was Crowbar, and like all of these different solutions to this fairly important hard problem um, if we had had one that was part of OpenStack, it would have changed everyone's experience of it. Because the folks who picked a good installer and updater paradigm are the ones who did really well with OpenStack. And the community of folks who had lousy experiences with OpenStack, it was almost always not OpenStack. It was what they were using to deploy and run it. Um, we... Yeah, that first summit, the first secret summit, where we sat down and said, oh, yeah, I guess we are going to support both Zen and KVM. And therefore, <laughs> we're going to add this layer of abstraction to something that doesn't need to be abstract. I mean, 100% of our customers use KVM under OpenStack, or like we few using VMware under OpenStack, nobody using Zen under OpenStack. But what we did to make that extra abstraction to the code base was bad and wrong. Um, we did other bad and wrong things to create more like less opinion, more agnosticism. And and I it's good to have that mix of like we're somewhat agnostic, somewhat opinionated, and we have that mix in Cloud Foundry too. You have to be really careful of where you draw the line. Because if you're agnostic, your plugin model has to be really good. Your abstraction layer has to be really clean. It can't leak. And we we mostly missed. I think we we put plugins in places where we didn't need them as well as in places where we did and we were opinionated in places where we shouldn't have been like there was some 
and I so I think actually we tried to be more committee and less dictator in cases where we really just should have had dictators you know like I mean it sounds I sound like a fascist but um, you know the parts that worked really well Swift has essentially always had a dictator right fine it's it, it has and an it's architecture <laughs> and it is solid, solid and it has evolved on a very steady cadence for a long time um cinder at a certain point had a dictator and it worked pretty well and it evolved in a very steady way and it ended up being The source of pain for most open stack users for a long time. So, so what are containers doing to infrastructure as a service? Super interesting question. Um, I am both old and young, right? I'm 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 going to be forty, so I'm not actually that old. But I have been writing software for thirty-four years. So in software years, I'm older than God, um, and so. I tend to get like grouchy old man, get off my lawn syndrome. Or like, oh my God, containers have been around for forever. Jesus Christ, it's just a zip file with some C groups. Um, but then I also have to like try and keep myself relevant. Oh, I'm swearing on Cisco, aren't I? I'm not supposed to swear, I'm sorry. That's okay, uh, that's what explicit tags are for, Josh. Okay. Um, I, uh, I also have to remind myself, you know, the difference in a user experience does actually make it a new paradigm. Right, so when we were working on the browser, the fact that uh, we had tabs, right, was tab browsing was the big turning point between like early IE and Opera and Firefox and Netscape. So um, it's your fault. Thanks. Sorry. Uh, and so in that sense, containers delivered a different user experience on existing technology, right? So we think of containers as one level of abstraction. What Cloud Foundry mostly delivers is actually application as a service in the sense of give us your source code and we'll make it run. And we do that with containers and sometimes in the Windows world we do it with process pools or containers or whatever depending on the tech that's appropriate. But we're not saying, hey, developer, deal with containers. Because our goal from a, me as a developer, I'm like, if I have to understand an IP address, I'm unhappy. If right. I have to understand a package format, I'm unhappy. Writing my own RPMs makes me unhappy. That's like, I want to write the code that the user is experiencing, not the code that's making it possible to operate well. So containers are super valuable in that, in that layer. But I mean, what's funny for us, and this is not like bragging on behalf of Cloud Foundry, but there are so many more applications running in Cloud Foundry deployments than there are in prod. You know, like the Air Force using it, the spy agencies using it, big banks using it. These are production workloads using containers, but who cares? Then there are devs writing to containers and getting that successfully into production because you have to be a smarter dev and a different kind of dev to be excited about rolling up images and using schedulers to deal with affinity and anti-affinity. You know, my argument was, if you're that kind of dev, you should probably be working on a platform team building a platform. Come work for Pivotal or go work for, for Google rather than um, building apps. If you're, if you're building apps but you're excited about the container layer, 
Like, why aren't you excited about your user's experience? They're not consuming a container. That's an interesting take. And yet there, I would say, there are a lot of Cisco customers who want to care about that IP address. I know. You know? Yep. So like, how do you reconcile? Like, you're not just going to flip a switch. I mean, you know, some of these big companies that have, you know, all this money invested and I don't know, maybe it's technical debt, you know, at some point the 5G is going to become 6G or whatever. But like, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile kind of what, what people want? Do you think people know what they want? Do you think by the time people know what they want, the technology has moved that much further and they're that much more behind? Like, I, I definitely still feel like on occasion, I'm still given like an OpenStack 101. Yeah. Well, here's the way we think about it. And I, over time, this has made more and more sense to me. It doesn't mean it's true. It just means I've, I've soaked up the opinion. Uh, Pivotal owns Spring, right? And so people that are writing Java, which I know Java is not a cool language anymore, but it's, it's like 50% of all enterprise software is written in Java, and the other half is written in .NET. And there's a de minimis amount of Node or Python or Ruby or whatever in that space. That's And we're talking like... You know, you pick a big bank, JP Morgan Chase, has tens of thousands of developers writing Java apps. So that's not going away. 85% um, of the time now, if somebody's starting a new Java project, they're using Spring. They're using Spring and Spring Boot. And, and those, are, those are pivotal open source projects. Um, and uh, the evolution of that community has been towards microservices for a real business reason, right? They're like, hey, we got to scale up our team so we have more people working on the same code base without slowing down. How do we keep the team agile while we, while we scale it up? And scaling agile is like this classic problem. And it turns out microservices really help because, yeah, you're, breaking your, you're keeping your team small and they each own a service, but you can have multiple versions of that service in prod at the same time. So you don't have to wait for your other teams to be ready to migrate to your new version before you can release it. So you unblock all of these different teams. And that's the business solution there. There's other benefits around you know, scalability and how you manage your architecture, but that's the big business driver. So we start from the top and say, hey, if you're trying to do microservices and you're writing in Java, you're probably using Spring Boot and Spring Cloud. And then if you're using Spring Boot and Spring Cloud, you have a bunch of new problems that Cloud Foundry solves really well. So you need that platform in the middle there. The fact that we're using containers is not what the developers care about. They care about this architecture problem. And then from the operations side, they're still in the, hey, I'm trying to patch these operating systems all the time. I'm trying to keep dependencies up to date. We got Equifax coming out with like, oops, uh, four months ago, there was this big security vulnerability we didn't get patched, right? That's not to pick on them, that's a common problem. So we say, hey, we just provide a fairly opinionated but automated way to patch everything. The OS, the middleware, all the dependencies and your app you know, we can, we can help you deploy that every single VM and every data center you have once a week, if you want. Every time there's an upstream fix for any part of Linux, for any part of your app stack, for any included library, and you don't have to schedule maintenance and downtime, and you don't have to write your own chef and puppet recipes to do it. So that, like from the operations up, they're solving an old problem that's still really hard, and they're, doing, they're also doing it with, with the platform. So that middle piece of like, hey, by the way, we're using containers to do a bunch of that magic, sure. Awesome, but the the ops teams aren't dealing with the containers, and the dev teams aren't dealing with containers. It's just part of the plumbing. The same way, like if you're if you're curling against a Cinder API endpoint, you're typing curl commands to create a block and mount it against something. 
that's not what OpenStack is for. I told, I, I, you know, people who remember when I first came into NASA, buildnasa.net, platform as a service, web application framework. I was like, we just need a little bit of programmable infrastructure. It should be trivial. OpenStack was written to run Cloud Foundry. The APIs were never intended to be consumed by humans. Dashboard was kind of an afterthought. It's like, let's give some eye candy to. I remember that. That was a big boss. deal, not having yeah. a dashboard. People, yeah. The assumption was that, oh, well, you know, if the APIs are there, people are going to want to build their own dashboards. Not yeah, or not even. The platform is going to consume the APIs. You don't even need a dashboard. Like, what do you need a dashboard for? Um, yeah. Anyway, do, you see, do, do you see the struggle though for the control point? Like, you oh, know, yeah. you know, in the in the old world, it seemed, and maybe this is like a, a cultural thing, but it seemed like there was a very clear divide between IT, you know, app teams. You know, now I don't, I don't feel like I feel like that wall's coming down, and it's really culturally painful for people. There are two big drivers, maybe three. The first one is what used to be called DevOps. And I stopped saying DevOps because I think so many people have used the term for so many different things, it's confusing now. right? So let's say SRE, the model that operations, operability is the responsibility of the dev team. Operations might be the responsibility of that balanced team for a period of time. It might be shared. It might be handed off and handed back. Um, but it's no longer a white, a black box relationship. It's and it's no longer based on a binder or a runbook, right? So runbooks are gone. Runbook automation is gone. And what we admitted is this is about the conversation that has to happen, and the acceptance of the contracts, where those contracts are about uptime, or they're about interfaces, or they're about what tools are allowed or supported conversations. Um, and uh, we saw a lot of people try and use Docker or containers raw to do DevOps and say, I'll just give you containers and you, you IT operations team just run my containers, let me own containers. And that was like an accelerant and then it fell off a cliff as soon as the patching and updating problem became prominent because then you were like, oh my God, uh, Heartbleed has come out, Poodle's come out, quick, go find every single dev team who've ever built a container and have them rebuild their containers. They're like, okay, well, the conversation is built around the pipeline now, the CI/CD pipeline. And if the pipeline is producing images using Packer and then running them somewhere, fine. If it's pushing directly into CF, fine. But the centerpiece is the pipeline and not, not containers. Containers, mm. again, containers, again, are an artifact, and maybe they're generated, maybe they're deployed, but the conversation is about is it in CI/CD, not is it in the container. Um, the other cultural challenge, so partly that was like DevOps almost became a placeholder for the shadow IT wars of folks saying IT is bad and slow, therefore we'll use public cloud. Public cloud, uh, you know, needs an ops team too, but we'll do it ourselves. Um, and the other, I mean, in our customer base, there's every possible permutation of central IT and line of business IT, divisional IT, outsourced IT, different mix of contractors. Um, and a lot of these uh, people stay in a big Fortune 500 company. IT leadership might have been there for 30 years. So they have institutional history around, oh, yeah, we've seen this. You know, they want shadow IT for a while and then they give it back to us and expect us to run it. You know, and that that back and forth is acknowledged, and who has the budget and who has the authority to pick new tools. The new problem, and this is like software eating the world, Andreessen kind of provoked this of saying everyone should try and be Google, 
and they say, okay, well, we need to hire the people Google hires and pay them the way Google pays them and give them mm. that same level of freedom, right? So the, the formal definition of this is responsible autonomy and saying we want teams that are autonomous, that are allowed to go off and make decisions on their own without asking for permission and authority, but we need them to be responsible to do it in a way that the organization overall can, can function. And so this is about that balance between do I get to use every language I want, do I get to pick my own language, and am I picking from a list that the organization says is okay? Do I get to pick my own architecture, but I'm doing it where it's auditable and the logs are standardized and single sign-on works? You know, so that kind of tension. Um, and we've seen, frankly, and I, I actually called this the McKenty postulate. I talked about this at RedisConf, but I was super tired and sick and I gave a really confusing explanation of it. Um, when you have a shared platform that has, that's multi-tenant, but that has interfaces intended for different audiences. So we literally, like there's CLI tools for the developers to use Cloud Foundry. There's CLI tools for the operators to use Cloud Foundry. There are CLI interfaces for the auditors to use Cloud Foundry. These are all legit, and there's, and there's interfaces for the network ops teams to, to use Cloud Foundry. So, the, the platform itself helps to bridge that conversation and to lower everyone's blood pressure on the finger pointing. Mm. And so, and, and that, whereas I saw a lot of the like raw container wars of like DevOps says, and we're, we own Docker, we're using CoreOS and Tectonic and as being an acceleration of the arms race between ops and, and dev instead of figuring out how to get everyone in the same room. Mm. Um, and the tools, those tools in particular were like either very ops oriented or very dev oriented and how they were deployed and who owned them. They weren't intended to be used by both teams at once. So what are large companies doing to address this kind of cultural problem? I mean, you say there's every permeation, but I mean, are they just going out and finding, you know, unicorn engineers? Are they no. getting to a point now where they're like, y'all get in a room and figure it out? <laughs> like what's happening? The best case I've seen. I mean, some of them are doing very bad things. Some of them are, are trying to be smarter than they are. But the best case I've seen, um, Donnie Burkholt and I were talking about this. He's like, look, IT and, and software inside a business is like an accordion. It's expanding and contracting. The contraction of standardization, the expansion is innovation. You have to acknowledge these are both happening at once. If you want to go fast in that scenario and you want to balance responsible autonomy with like mission command, with like here's the goal and the vision and shared context, you have to tolerate a certain amount of messiness. And so the, the successful businesses are saying, okay, we get it. In a microservices world, we're probably gonna have two teams building the same service some of the time. And we're gonna have some experimentation that is outside of the box in terms of language and technology. And we're gonna try and not standardized too aggressively too early. So we're not gonna let people come in and say, it's all Spring Boot, it all goes to Cloud Foundry, because the, the reaction to that blows everything up. Yeah, you can't force so it. So you're, you're sort of balancing and say, okay, executives, you gotta get used to this being a little messy. We're gonna give you some cool ways to get visibility into what's going on, but you don't get to do big design up front. You don't get to try and feel like you have control over everything. Some of these teams have to just you got to let them run. You got to let the horse run. But, but people, do you think people hear that as, you know, you have to be, there has to be a risk aversion factor that you're, you're going to have to get comfortable with a little more risk? 
So the, the, the balance is the risk is you always have risk. The difference is you're embracing a certain amount of technical risk to mitigate a certain amount of business risk. The business risk is you go too slow and you miss the market. Right. That is a real and measurable risk. Right. right. And we can point to this in every single industry now. It's like, guys, you went too slow and you missed that market. You would now either play catch up or you give up. It's catch up or give up. That's a business risk. The technical risk is are you accumulating more technical debt than you want? Um, are you uh, pursuing a technology stack that's going to be hard to staff later? So is it too cutting edge or niche? Um, is it an architecture that's not portable or, you know, like it's either you're too far bleeding edge or you're too far laggard, right? So you're trying to dial that in and it's the same thing with legacy. It's like, you can't leave the legacy behind, but you can't spend hundred percent of your energy trying to carry it forward either. So you're, it's a, it's a, a balancing act. Um, the goal is to bias towards action and iteration and learning. Say, do something, see if you're wrong. Improvement kata. Try something, see if you're wrong, learn from it. Uh, you know, get your teams talking to each other on a regular cadence, but don't force them to all do the same thing and march in step. This is not an army, right? This is, we go back to the Nazis and glorious bastards. You want a bunch of autonomous teams running through the woods, messing with the Nazis. Like we're not going to line up in rows and let the British shoot us and, and like, you know, it's not that kind of warfare. What I'm hearing is trust. That's what I'm hearing. Like you just have to trust that there are smart people who are going to make good decisions. Well, it's balance. It's a balance of trust and, and, um, guardrails. Guardrails are one way to put it, but it's actually, it's, it's visionary inspiration. So mm -hmm. if you, if you inspire, and it is actually, it's a funny thing. When people say, hey, we have to let our developers do whatever they want so they're not bored, otherwise they'll leave. I'm like, <laughs> you know what excites developers more than anything else? Shipping something that people like and seeing that they like it. So if you have to keep them happy by letting them write in Haskell, you are too far away from the customer experience. Get them closer to real business value, and I guarantee you they don't care what they're writing in. And I have this from a personal experience. I'm back to writing Java. I'm not a Java guy. I'm a Python guy. I'm like, oh my God, Java. So many, so many interfaces. The abstract factory class. No, please, no. But at a certain point, I'm like, guess what? I don't really care. I'm so excited about what we're building. I'll do it in any language. Yeah. That's interesting. Seems like you've discussed some of these points before. <laughs> this is basically my job is to go around, talk to CIOs, be like, I'm pretty sure your problem is this. It's not tools and technology, really. You need the right tools and tech, but you have, you're either all the way into, we think we're so bad at this that we should just buy it from other people and we've kind of given up. I'm like, you have to get away from that because you can't buy from IBM something that will make you innovate. Or you're so far on the not invented here spectrum, you think you need to let every team build whatever they want, whether or not it has any business value and they can't even have any adult supervision. I was like, you know, winning in the market is in the middle. The one side, your eventual maintenance costs will kill you. The other side, you're never going to be faster than your vendor. Your vendor can't even save themselves. So there's a middle ground. Um, well, one last question. We're, we're almost out of time here. I could yeah. go on for another 20 minutes and yeah. feel like we still don't get to everything. Yeah. Uh, but, but what do you see happening to this, you know, vendor partner services dynamic from where you're sitting? Yeah, great question. Um, I spent a lot of the last two years, uh, my other title, VP of Global Ecosystem Engineering, helping to grow up the, the Pivotal Cloud Foundry ecosystem. Right? So it's now 190 ISV partners. It includes every major public cloud provider. It includes 
uh, middleware vendors and database vendors and monitoring APM and, and et cetera. We won partner of the year from Google, uh, Microsoft, JP Morgan Chase, MongoDB, and um, somebody, uh, Accenture, I think. So I was like, we're, we're doing well in that space. Open Service Broker API has been transformative. And the fact that it works across Kubernetes and Cloud Foundry and supported by Amazon and Microsoft and Google and everyone else uh, is a sea change in terms of saying, hey, I've got apps and I've got data and I can connect them and there's a standard there. Uh, so that's shifting. We set up a training program for big system integrators. I know there's been press about some of our larger partnerships with Cognizant and Accenture and others. Um, and these are not, this is not lightweight training. This is month long, nine to five boot camp in the office. Here's what cloud native is and means. Here's how you retool legacy uh, applications to be you know, somewhere on the maturity stack. JP Morgan Chase has this great cloud native maturity model. It's not like cloud native or not. It's like, is it cloud ready? Is cloud friendly, cloud ready, cloud enabled, cloud native? And what does that mean? How many factors are at play and where is state stored and how is config separated? Um, very actionable. So I'd say we're starting to see now enough uh, common knowledge and common context in the partner ecosystem, in the ISV ecosystem, in the customer base. You know, increasingly my job is just to get our different customers together sharing their own stories about how they've grappled with different challenges, usually cultural challenges. Usually, yeah. yeah. How do you bring the frozen I would love data? to write a book about that at some point. It's one thing that I've covered unrelentlessly on the podcast. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's like, it's the, the missing factor is that human factor is so critically important. It starts with fear and self-esteem. Yes. Anil, Anil Lakani, you know Anil. Oh, yes. Gave a great talk about the way that people's self-esteem is attached to their current competencies. And the fact that when they suddenly discover that what they're good at is no longer relevant, they will experience their collapse of self-esteem as physical pain. Um, and so the trick to working around this, change management is about tricking people into developing a new competency before you let them realize that their old competency doesn't matter. So that you avoid, you buffer that collapse of self-esteem. And then using your community, using your teams, using your company attitude, using the broader community, to buttress up people's self-esteem when they can't do it for themselves during that transition. Not a secret anymore. It's a great talk, though. It is a great talk. We should have Anil on. Yes. For sure. I haven't talked to Anil forever. Good people. He's still drinking coffee. I mean, I guarantee <laughs> that's what he's doing right now is drinking coffee. I wonder how many tweets he has that are like coffee or with the word coffee in them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up today. Statistically, just, just for funsies. Yes. Well, Josh, uh, we are about out of time, but I want to give you the opportunity because it's been such a great conversation uh, to offer any closing thoughts, anything that you're excited about. You know, talks you have coming up. You've got a you've got a minute and a half. Uh, let's see, Cloud Foundry Summit in Basel, Switzerland. I do a lot of talking, so I sort of lose track of of where am I going next. That one I'm talking about the Open Service Broker API and the fact that you can you know, run an app on Cloud Foundry on top of Microsoft Azure connected to Google's Vision AI and with another microservice running on-premise on top of vSphere and it's all, it all works, like, it's crazy. The walls have actually come down between the vendors in, in just an amazing way. 
Um, we do an endless number of free workshops around Spring Boot, Spring Cloud. Uh, the Cloud Native Roadshow is free and probably coming to a city near you. So that's a joint thing with Google. Um, yeah, I just say if you're not if you're not doing microservices yet, it's probably because you're working on a small project or you're not aware of of what it could do for you in in a bigger project. Um, and yeah, I'm just I'm excited to see what happens next. You know, I'm always excited to see what happens next. You get bored easy. I'm still excited about old problems too. You know, I still like to geek out about like. Uh, the new A11 processor and how it's faster than, than the MacBook Pro now. <laughs> like, yeah, but, but, uh, and, and then there's some things like, is today, is, is this the year of Linux on the desktop in an IPv6 network? <laughs> so, no, I do get bored easily. Geeky. Oh. How do you have this much free time? I'm amazed. Josh. I don't sleep. Thank you so much. I, I know we had some like scheduling snafus, and yeah, I, sorry, I know sorry. I had to text you this morning and say, should I put makeup on and take a shower or not? Uh, but I'm really, really glad that uh, that we had this podcast and we we're able to talk uh, in an unfiltered way. So thank this you so delightful. much. Oh, so hey, much. Closing last thought, actually. Um, Richard Sirotter, who runs also another podcast and, and runs a lot of marketing at Pivotal, is going to moderate a discussion between Susan Fowler and I, if she agrees, on whether or not microservices endpoints should be versioned. So Ooh. that is gonna be riveting. It is, as far as I know, the only like serious throwdown. I'm actually fairly sure Susan's right, which is, uh, which is scary going in. I don't have a strong position, but I'm gonna <laughs> take it anyway. It should be entertaining, nonetheless. Bye, Josh, at Mc Jay McKenty, right? At Jay McKenty. J-M-C-K-E-N-T-Y. Uh, follow us at Cisco Cloud. Subscribe. Let us know who we should have on. Give us some likes if you're on the YouTubes or the uh, SoundClouds or the Stitchers or the whatever. Uh, subscribe and tune in next time for a great episode. Josh, thank you. Say thank bye. You so much. Super fun. Bye, Nikki.